Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Yep, it's good to see you all this morning, and let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we again thank you for the opportunity to study. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the truth and the way you run your kingdom. We ask that your spirit will join us, empower us, enlighten us, enable us to be uh, conduits of your love, your truth, and your principles in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. The lesson titled for today is Dealing with Debt. I found it a difficult lesson for a variety of reasons. So let's go through. Memory text is Proverbs 22.7. It says, the rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. What do you think of this idea that the rich rule over the poor? Does that still happen in society today? And have you, can you give some examples and ways that the rich do that in society today? Well, with the COVID, how the rich were supporting yeah, small businesses during COVID. So, financial pressure, job creation or loss, loans, high interest rates. How about manipulating the government's uh, tax incentives or loopholes? Uh, how about inflation? You know, who controls uh, the printing and and influx of the amount of currency being dumped into our society? Do, do the poor control that or do, do the, the powerful and the wealthy? And as you dump more money into circulation, what, what happens to the price of goods? They go up. They go up. And then if you have been a hardworking laborer and you've been over the last 10, 15 years putting money aside and you've got a savings account with $50,000, $100,000 in it, and then inflation goes up, inflation, say, let's just for easy mathematics, say running at 10%, and you have $100,000 in the bank and it's 10% a year, at the end of that year, can you still buy $100,000 worth of goods or do you get 10% less? 10%. You get ten percent less. Your hundred thousand dollars now buys what ninety thousand would have. Excuse me. What a uh, uh, yeah. What ninety thousand would have bought. You've lost ten percent buying power. In other words, that's what inflation does. Now to the wealthy, to the wealthy, that doesn't make it. If you if you got a billion dollars in the bank, yeah, you don't notice it at all. But to the poor. That type of increase in price in goods, have you noticed it at the gas pumps? Have you noticed it when your dozen eggs are costing seven, eight, nine dollars a dozen now? Are you noticing these things? Yes. Yeah. So this is also part of it. Do we gain more freedom by more debt? Kind of a silly question. It's, it's, it, obviously, we don't. And have you known people who've made life decisions that they would not have otherwise made? If they weren't in debt, they made choices to take a job and that job was in a city or they or a third shift job or et cetera, simply because they couldn't afford not to because of debt. When we're under financial pressure, we're more vulnerable to compromising principles. Do you, do, you, do you understand that? Yes, I believe it. And if we compromise our principles because of financial pressure, if we do that, what happens in our minds? What's the normal response to anyone 
for any reason, including financial reasons, but any reason, if they make a decision to compromise their values and principles, what happens in their mind? Guilt. Fear, guilt, shame. That's right. That's exactly what happens in their mind. And do people like those feelings? No. So they want them to go away. So if they've compromised their principles because of financial pressure and they're feeling some guilt or shame, they don't want to live in guilt and shame or fear, what are the two ways to make that go away? One is called repentance. In other words, restore yourself to living in harmony with your principles. But in this case, in the states of our, our, our scenario, that would require them taking an action that results in financial pain or hardship. Some might do that. They might have the financial pain, but now they have clear conscience, they feel good, their integrity, they feel peace again. Others might not do that. And so what do they do instead in order to make the guilt, shame, and fear go away if they're compromising their principles? Blame others. They have to change their principles, which means they have to rationalize. They have to justify they have to find a reason why it was okay to make an exception. And so they begin to warp their minds to see things in different light than they used to see them to make it okay to take the course of action that they did. And that way they can judge. And, and this is how minds get, get hardened. I saw many people do this during COVID, compromise longstanding principles and practices of medical ethics, something we call informed consent, uh, we never historically would coerce people into medical experimentation. You would not have to keep a job. In other words, you, you were not required to, to, in, uh, to participate in a medical experiment in order to keep your job. That was historically not only unethical, it would have probably been prosecuted if some employer would have required his employees to participate in medical experimentation in order to be employed. They probably would have been prosecuted for that. Okay. Under COVID, however, millions of doctors and healthcare professionals and pastors and churches uh, went along with this and said, no, no, this is fair, this is ethical. Why? Well, they had to rationalize, they had to justify. It's okay to pressure people with finances. You're going to lose your job if you don't take this. Why? Fear. So there's multiple ways to manipulate people. One, financial financial pressures, misinformation, deceit. Uh, getting people in debt, the deeper debt, the more vulnerable they are to accept rationalizations and manipulation of information so they can go along with something that is financially good for them. Uh, consider our current higher education system in this country. Do you recognize it's structured to an to, to cause people to come out with huge debt. It's structured, it's designed, it's created, it's strategic so that the most professionals in our society that go to get higher education come out with debt. Do you understand that? What's the purpose of that? If you come out with debt, do you have as great a freedom 
to decide where and how you're going to practice or what job you're going to take, or are you more vulnerable to being induced and controlled by corporations and the government? Without necessarily realizing it, but you're taking jobs to service your debt. And then the, the way it's structured in our society, if you're, uh, I speak most knowledgeably about the practice of medicine, but I'm sure other fields have the same issue. Uh, you come out not only with your school debt, if you want to open your own practice, you often have to go into more professional debt to get the expensive equipment that you need to open a practice and run a practice, which again then makes you more vulnerable to complying with the government mandates and the government programs that reimburse you for seeing patients because you need to service your debt and you have less flexibility in your own independent medical decision-making. Additionally, in order to uh, maximize your income as a provider, you need to be in certain insurance networks and certain hospital panels. And in order to do that, you've got to comply with their programs and their policies, which you may or may not agree with, but if you disagree with them, then you'll lose your privileges and that threatens your financial bottom line. And so you compromise and go along uh, and rationalize, well, I didn't make it. It's not my policy. Uh, I, you know, I have to do this in order to still care for my patients and so on and so forth. And, and I'm just pointing out the layers of debt and how debt can cause people to compromise and collude with processes and systems that their own personal decision making would not lead them to do. When I became a physician, which wasn't that long, I'm not that old, okay? But when I became a physician, 75% of physicians in America uh, were independent practitioners. They owned their own practices. Today, more than 50% of physicians are employed. Excuse me, I take that back. <laughs> Today, I think it's, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think more than 50% of physicians are employed by corporate corporations now. And once you're a corporate employee, the information, the policies, the procedures, the treatment protocols, uh, these, are the, these are like uh, guardrails that are put up on the practitioner that they practice within. There are certain treatment options that are not even accessible in the, in, the, in the computer systems that doctors can't even select for, can't order certain tests, can't provide certain treatments because the system has decided for them what's orthodoxy and what's not orthodoxy. And so in the practice of medicine in, in America, it's become very corporated and understand very clearly medicine in America is now big business. You are a resource to be sold goods to, to make billions of dollars for the corporations. It used to be a practitioner knew his patients, they had a relationship and he cared for your well-being and was interested in ha ha having you be as healthy as possible. This is being eroded very seriously by the, by the financial pressures being brought to bear. Debt is a big part of that. You see more, the wisdom more, more than ever today of the Adventist lifestyle health message. Stay healthy, live healthy, and require less, as little as possible of the medical industry to mess with your life. How easy is it for us to get into debt in our society today? <laughs> you think that's accidental? I mean, how many of you get flyers all the time, everywhere you go? Uh, we'll give you 5% off your purchase today if you sign up for our credit card. 
everywhere you go, almost every store. Do you have our credit card? Uh, you can get 5% off today on your purchase if you sign up for our credit card. Do you actually think they're trying to save you money by that 5% off? Uh, no. How many of you get those little emails all the time offering you this credit card or that credit card? No background check, no credit check, instant credit. Home loans, instant approved, pre-approved. Uh, I get them all the time. Pre-approved loan for this, pre-approved loan for that. I just delete, 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 delete. Do you think this easy access to credit is designed to help the disadvantaged and the poor people in our society? No. It's not. It's exploitive. It takes serious advantage. How do you think loaning of money would, would, what it would look like in our country today if this Bible principle was practiced? This is Exodus 22, 25 through 27. If you lend money to any of my people with, who, with you who is poor, you shall not be like the money lenders to him. You shall not exact interest from him. And then if you take his cloak as a pledge, if you take something as a as security, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. How, what would happen to the loaning of money if they couldn't charge interest? <laughs> Disappear. But some people believe... Well, it would certainly get less, wouldn't it? It would definitely be less, less number of loan institutions and less number of these uh, businesses and, and title in, uh, turn your title into cash and, and check into cash and, and all these little they would – they would seriously get less, wouldn't they? So rich the, – the wealthy lend money for two reasons, two primary reasons. One is to make money, charge interest and make money. That's one reason. And if we took that reason away, some, some loaning and, and institutions that loan would go away. But there's a second reason the wealthy loan money. And what's the second reason? Control. 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 To control. That's exactly right. When you have somebody indebted to you, you can bring financial pressure on them to control their behavior and decision making. And so this is why corporations will... Uh, uh, Loan. That's why banks loan. That's why big businesses loan. This is why governments loan to governments. You know, these big and these big financiers loan to governments as well. And and if you look through the history, many governments have borrowed from big banks, and then the banks can put pressure on the governments on the laws and stuff they pass. Second paragraph in the lesson says, "Why is debt an almost international scourge at every level, personal, corporate, and government?" Every society has always had at least a small percentage who were in debt, but today a much larger portion of the people are in debt, and it's almost never to their benefit. What do you think? Any, any thoughts about that? Why we're so much debt today? Do you know what the U.S. governmental debt is right now? Yeah. And climbing by the second? <laughs> $31 trillion, which is a number we really can't even understand. $31 trillion. Um, that is approximately $100,000 of debt for every person living in America. For every person living in America, that's approximately $100,000 of debt. Is the debt and debt management of nations... 
going to play a role in the events the Bible describes as leading up to the second coming of Christ. Do you think there's a role for that, to, this playing in in some way? When Revelation warns about a beastly system using economic sanctions of no buying or selling, say those who have the mark of the beast, would, would, would debt and, and indebtedness uh, have some role in that? Yes. Would financial systems in the world need to somehow be integrated and, and connected in some way in order to bring that about? Would, do you think physical cash might go away at some point? And it becomes simply a digital currency. And with tracking of people's, and once it becomes digital, and all your purchases are made with your smart device, your your smart watch, your phone, uh, some other. I know they've already started experimentations in certain places around the world where they put a little chip in your hand, and your chip is with you all the time. And, and you just scan your hand over a scanner, and it and it it purchases for you. And they have electronic money that just trans, your employer just electronically transfers the money to your account, and and it's a, registered on your little chip. Uh, if they if they do this. Do you think that they would in any way ever track your comings and goings and your purchases? <laughs> no, That's no. the reason for it. <laughs> Do you know that there's actually already out there, published and spoken about, the plan, uh, once they uh, convert to a digital currency, that it won't be neutral currency like we have now. When I say neutral, your dollar, you can take anywhere that uses dollars and buy it for anything you want. You can buy it for cigarettes if you want to buy cigarettes or alcohol, or you can buy on the street illegally. You can buy drugs or you can buy, you can go and buy uh, healthy food. You can help somebody with a charitable donation. You can use your money for anything you choose to use your money for right now. But the, what's talked about is once they make it digital money, that either the government or your employer can tag your money, your digital currency, with an electronic tag that it cannot be used for certain things. For instance, your employer might look and say, oh, Johnny, uh, we see that you're 350 pounds. We care so much about you. We're tagging your money. You can't buy pork rinds anymore, and you can't uh, spend your money at any fast food restaurants. Uh, or Susie, you're a smoker and we care about you, so your money can't be used to buy nicotine products and cigarettes anymore. And uh, so when you go to scan, it won't it won't let you purchase these things. Or they can say, oh, you you go to Come and Reason Ministries, and and that program that that speaker has spoken out against the jab and and the harm that that can come for. And we see that you're trying to buy a ticket to go to a city where they're having a convention. Uh, we don't. Uh, your money can't be used to buy that airline ticket to go to that convention because it's uh, it's an anti-government propaganda uh, producing machine over there, that Come and Reason Ministries. This is the future that some people see for our money. Do you think increasing national debts to the point of breaking the back of societies will play a role in people's willingness to move towards this type of unified, controlled economic system? And if you don't, I'm thinking, what are the consequences of individual people? When prices get so high, they can't afford to heat their homes, they don't have food to put on the table, we'll, and somebody comes in and says, if we move to this, we can ensure that you will have a, a home, you will have clothes, you will have heating, you will have food. How many would go along? 
How many right now in America are actually ready to go along with it right now? I understand about 40% of Americans are ready to go along with this right now. Have you considered how might our nation function differently if we had no national debt? Let's say our nation has no national debt. We actually have 30 billion trillion in the bank. We're ahead. Do you think our nation could function differently? Could we put in place actual real scholarship programs for any person who maintains certain grades? They can go to school and get their education free just like they can their high school education. Could we do something like that? Could we put in place uh, a actual real investment in infrastructure to make this uh, this country uh, more human friendly and habitable? I mean, could we do a lot of things to benefit people if we weren't in such debt? Do you think the reason we're in debt is accidental? No. No, it's strategic. It's purposeful. It cripples, it cripples this country. It also makes us indebted to those who buy the, the, uh, buy the debt. Who, who's buying much of our debt? China. China. China is buying much of our debt, which makes them have huge influence over the policies we practice. I have some other things in the notes for those who want to read it, but I'm going to go, go into to some of the things that happened in this country over the last 20 years that, that have caused this. Let's look at Sunday's lesson. The lesson just suggests there are three primary reasons people get into financial difficulty. Ignorance, uh, they just don't know much about finances and they make just some poor choices out of ignorance as uh, one. Two, greed and selfishness, living beyond their means, uh, seeking to you know, look better than other people and, and so taking on debt to try to make themselves appear richer, wealthier, more powerful. And then misfortune or tragedy, uh, some health uh, problem comes, accident, disasters, wars in the region in which you live, etc. So tra tragedies or misfortune. I think those are probably the three big categories for, for most. Ego, pride, um, ignorance, and then misfortunes of various kinds. But, but can people take on debt for, for positive reasons? Can a person take on a, a debt because they want to actually improve their family? They take on a business loan or a student loan or a home loan or a car loan so they can actually have a car to go to work in order to get a job in order to support their family. Can, can people take on loans uh, for reasons that are not selfish and not egotistical and not foolish and not ignorant but un, uh, insightful and intelligent because they actually want to benefit people in their life? Yeah, so the point of this is that that while debt is not good, if you can achieve the same goal without the debt, debt taking on debt itself is not evil. It really depends on the circumstances and situations. It's more of the motive than the, the, the object of taking on debt itself. What can help us from taking on bad or foolish debt or trivial debt? Here's some Bible wisdom. See if this has any, any bearing on if we practice this, would it help us avoid the foolish or trivial debts? This is Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? If we practice this principle, would it protect us from foolish debt and unwise debt? In other words, does being content 
with your current life circumstances and moving forward in improving that in harmony with God's plan and path for your life, if, if, if we have that peace that we're following where the Lord is leading and we're content with our station and our, and our gradual step development, does that insulate us from taking on foolish debt? Does the world want people to live this principle? <laughs> or have you noticed that the world is bent on marketing and advertising to cause and incite envy and greed and lust for wealth and jealousy and discontent with your circumstance? Do you notice that? There's constant messaging. You'll be happier if you get more. You'll be happier if you spend more. You'll get the guy or the girl or you'll be successful if you get this car or this jewelry or this, this, uh, this house or this other uh, or go to this event and spend $5,000 on a Super Bowl ticket. Monday's lesson asks us to read Matthew 6.24, which says, No one can serve two masters. Either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then the lesson asks us, points us to, after asks us to read that, to 1 John 2.15. But let's, all, let's read it all the way through verse 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does, does the will of the Father abides forever. How do you connect the, the, these two passages? Let's not serve two masters, and the, the focus on money, and then this issue of uh, don't love the world and the things in the world. How are they connected Love of the world, love of money is very similar. Love of the world, love of money is very similar. What are the two antagonistic principles vying for every human heart and mind? There's two principles vying. Love and trust for God, fear and selfishness. Me first. These are the two antagonistic principles vying. Love and trust leads us to live altruistic lives, seeking to be benefit to other people. We are givers rather than takers. We love God and we love other people and we have joy if we can even sacrifice to lift somebody up that we love. And we see them succeed even if it costs us something. Right? Whereas fear and selfishness is, I'm afraid I won't get mine. I'm afraid that I won't, uh, won't uh, have enough. I'm afraid I'm going to starve. And so, therefore, I need to exploit or take or hoard. And therefore, I love what empowers me. I love money. I love money rather than I love God. Or I love money rather than I love people. And so, this is what the Bible is talking about. This is what John is talking about. And, and this selfishness that we have had in our nature because of Adam's sin, and we're born with this, has three avenues through which it manifests in our lives. And John elucidated those. It's the lust of the flesh, which is the sensual pleasures of life. The lust of the eyes, which is greed and, and, and hoarding and wealth. And, and the pride of life, which is egotism or power over controlling other people and exerting power over them and elevating self at the expense of others. These are the ways selfishness manifests in our life. 
And so if we love God and others more, then we actually are not seduced with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. We actually want to build others up and help others get free of those things as well. Does that make sense? Questions about that? So the point is, it's actually not about the money. It's about the love of money. That's what it's about. Uh, last paragraph says, we enter into our church membership with praise and thanksgiving to our God who has created and redeemed us. Now, hold on. Hold on to the, what's going to say, what's going to come next? In, in point nine of 13 in our baptismal vows, we are asked, quote, do you believe in church organization? Is it your purpose to worship God and to support the church through your tithes and offerings and to your personal effort and, and through by your personal effort and influence, unquote? As, as Seventh-day Adventists, we all said yes. So this text is a promise to those who offer thanksgiving to God and are faithfully paying their vows. Wow. You made a vow to pay your dues to the church. And God's promised if you pay your pay pay your dues, then you're keeping your vows. Okay, first off, before I comment anymore, what do you think about this paragraph? Do you have any concerns at all? Does it hit you as in your spirit, in your heart, in your judgment, in your conscience, do you feel that sounds very Christ-like, very godly? I feel that's perfectly in harmony with Scripture. Or do you feel like there's something off with this? Okay, there's something off. It's not real obvious necessarily because we all do believe in tithes and offerings. We all do believe in supporting the church. But there's something off with this. What's off? What isn't right? This makes it sound like an obligation. It's not an obligation. Yes. Yes, it does. It certainly does. And that should raise... Is that what that's about? Huh. What about... What process is being described in this paragraph? It equates a vow with the church with a vow with God. Is that Eve? Yes. <laughs> yeah, good insight, Eve. Yeah, good. This is the process of baptism, is what they're describing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. All right. Okay, I want to unpack this with you for a moment. Is this process of baptism and what they have connected to it scriptural? No. no. Does it come from the Bible? No. What we read here, what is, according to this, a person being baptized into? Into the church organization. Into the denominational system. In the New Testament, when people were baptized, were they baptized into the Jewish nation? No. No. Were they baptized into the Roman church? No. no. Were they baptized into the Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist, Adventist, or other any other denominational system? No. no. What in the New Testament, what were they baptized into? Christ Jesus Christ. Into Jesus Christ. Baptism was not denominational or organizational systemized. It was a public witness of a person 
entering into an eternal bond of love and trust with Jesus. Baptism was dying to an old life of fear and selfishness and rising in a new life as an individual who is bonded to Jesus with the cords of love and trust, washed clean of the old life, and arising with new power and new connection with the Savior. That's what baptism was in the New Testament. Now consider this example from the New Testament and see if it sounds like what we just heard described from the quarterly. We're going to read this out of Acts chapter 8, verse 26 to 31 and 34 through 38. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south on the road, uh, the desert road, and go down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge with all the treasures of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you know what do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I? he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come and sit up next to sit with him. The eunuch said the eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is this prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave the orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. Is this process the process we read from our quarterly a moment ago? No. No. What's the difference? And it's critical. I want you to understand functional. Uh, and we're going to unpack why it's so harmful. But what do you see as the process difference? The New, the New Testament baptized people into Jesus, a relationship with our divine Savior. Whereas today, people are baptized into organizations. They're not baptized into Jesus. Now, the organizations would deny it, but operationally and functionally, let me show you. This is how the process has changed. If somebody like this eunuch is reading the Bible and doesn't fully understand it and has someone like Philip explain it to them, and as it's explained to them right now, the revelation goes on, epiphany, conviction of the Spirit, and that person says to the pastor who's explained to him, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to be baptized. Will the pastor take them right then and baptize them? Or will the pastor say, let's get on our knees and say the sinner's prayer? And notice what the denominational systems have done is they've replaced baptism with the sinner's prayer. And once they've said the sinner's prayer, then they enroll them into an indoctrinational classes in which they spend weeks and months uh, learning the doctrines of the, of the tradition and traditions of the organization which is going to baptize them. And many of them have to uh, not only 
learn the doctrines and the, the, uh, the creeds of the system. They also have to then begin working to transform and reform their life. They need to give up their smoking. They need to give up their drinking. They need to give up their pork eating. They need to give up their Sabbath job. They need to work hard and reform their lives. And once and, and then and only then, once they have made themselves good enough, then the church will baptize them into Jesus. Twice the son of hell. <laughs> so they can become a member of the organization. And understand the reason the organizations do this is because they're more interested in the integrity and sustainability of the organization than they are the soul of the sinner. They do not want to take a chance on baptizing someone who hasn't conformed to their standards and allow that person into membership and therefore potentially vote to change the organization away from the standards. So you can't come in until you conform to what the way we practice. This process of baptizing into organizations rather than Jesus destroys love and trust in Jesus and the new converts and places the organization and organizational loyalty in place of loyalty to Jesus in the heart. This is intentional. The organizations want to be the ones that people are loyal to, and they want their devoted followers, and they want their system to be the brand that people are loyal to, and they want their them to join their club and, and, and give a public attestation to loyalty to that brand before they'll baptize them. And that's why they make this vow. You made a vow to these 13 things that you're going to do. And now you need to remember your vow because your vow requires you to continue to financially support our club, our system, our organization. Now, let me be clear. I personally have no objection to financially supporting denominational churches with our money. They do many good things, school churches, hospitals, missions, community services, uh, feeding hungry people. They do many good things, so financially support them is quite okay and righteous to do. I'm not opposed to that. What I'm opposed to is this method of bringing people into membership and the way they have done baptism and baptism into organizations. And this is why so many people, because they've been indoctrinated that their, their salvation is connected or linked to the system or the denomination rather than to Jesus, and they live in fear of being disfellowshipped uh, from the organization, and if that they're not part of that organization, they won't have salvation. Am I overstating it? No. 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 So how would it function if I were the supreme ruler in charge of all this um, in the denomination? Uh, well, we would baptize people into Jesus, just like they did in the New Testament. As soon as they're convicted, we baptize into Jesus, because it's only the power of Jesus working in their heart through the love relationship and the Holy Spirit that empowers them to actually live transformed lives. The way the system does it, it leads them into this religion that has a form of godliness but no power. It, devoid, it steals the power because it steals the love-trust relationship from them. Uh, so I would baptize them into Jesus. And then, after they're converted and they're truly Christian, because they're in Christ, I would, just like they did the Ethiopian, I would then invite the person 
to join our organization and inform them and educate them. And if you want to join our organization, these are the things that our organization values and what we uh, hold to be important for those who want to be members. Now, you're body, part of the body of Christ. You're a Christian, but you may not be a Seventh-day Adventist Christian because you don't necessarily value some of the things we value. That doesn't mean that you're not part of the body of Christ. You're just not going to have voting privileges and office-holding opportunities in our little club if you don't want to uh, join the same um, creeds and value the same things and work on the same mission. So I encourage you. Here's We'd love to have you part of our club. Our organization, but I want you to go home and, and study it. I want you to come to your own conclusion. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to lead you and ask if the Holy Spirit, now that you're part of the body of Christ, is the Holy Spirit leading you to join this fellowship and to serve God here, or is the Holy Spirit called you to join another fellowship and advance his gospel there? That's how I would do it. What do y'all think? Yeah. Do you think that, uh, I mean, I've been in the church work, so I see the kind of an evolution. It seems like we've just morphed into this monster, in a way, this corporate monster, where we've kind of lost sight of that, those early ideals, which I think what you're talking about, maybe the, the early uh, Adventists were thinking that way, more uh, less about a, a corporation and requirements. Even the standards of the church were more values and now they become like uh, requirements to, for membership or, or requirements for uh, dismembership, you know. Um. But, no, that's exactly right, because in the early church, they did not have a, a creed. Uh, if you ask the, the official... The officials of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, they would become very, uh, you, you would watch them, it would become very emotionally distressed, and you would see the, the veins begin to pop out, and the, and the face would become distressed if you would suggest the Adventist Church has a creed. And you know why they'd be very upset about that? Because Ellen White has written that the Adventist Church does not have a creed except for the Bible. The Bible and the Bible alone is our creed. And it's the other denominational churches that the Adventist Church label as um, you know, uh, the, the harlot or the harlot's daughters that have creeds. We don't have creeds. No, we have fundamental beliefs. And if you look up the definition of a creed in the dictionary, the definition of a creed, first definition is a set of fundamental beliefs. <laughs> yeah, but we don't have a creed. We have fundamental beliefs. Now, the historic Adventist church did not have that. They did not have a defined set of fundamental beliefs, the Bible and the Bible alone. And that's why the early Adventist pioneers, they had significant differences on some of the major doctrines like the Trinity. Ellen White was Trinitarian, but believed in the full divinity of Christ, uh, full divinity of the Holy Spirit with his own person. Uh, many of the other founders were Arian. They did not believe in that. They believed Jesus was a subordinate deity to the Father, came after the Father. There is no Holy Spirit. Uh, the Spirit is just the, the Spirit of the Father. Doesn't have, Many Adventist pioneers believe that, but Ellen White didn't. She was a Trinitarian. Uh, but that division did not cause them to diverge on the uh, four major points of agreement. And the four major points of agreement, what they called the pillars of the faith, uh, was sal salvation in Jesus Christ, the second coming, the advent, the understanding of mortality of the soul, the state of the dead, and the sanctuary message of preparing the people to meet Jesus, preparing us to be able to stand in his presence. Those are the four. All the other stuff uh, was uh, a wide range of perspectives and opinions if you had those, those four. 
Uh, and it was not even a test of fellowship, other than I, I'm sure that uh, they would hold to the standard of uh, of those uh, of, of the Sabbath keeping and so forth and so on along those lines. They wouldn't because that was a, a big point of contention back in their day. But when they baptized, they did baptize into Christ. And their mission was to bring people to Jesus and bring people to a message that they thought would prepare them for the second coming of Jesus. That was the mission. Uh, do you think the church still is advocating for that? Or do you think the church today is much more advocating for advancing the brand? Is the focus primarily uh, within the church on who do we understand God to be? Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Stop viewing him as an imperial dictator. See him for the gracious God that he is, as Jesus revealed. We want to uplift him. Or is the message the hour of his judgment has come and you better get the right rules, which we have the, t- the list of. We have the 28 fundamentals. And our rules are the ones that are going to be the standard by which he ultimately judges us by. And if you don't have the right rules, you're going to get punished by him. Anyway, I think it's very sad. It's not exclusive to the Adventist church. Most of the denominational churches do this, where they've substituted the sinner's prayer for actual baptism into Jesus, and then enroll people into various baptismal classes or indoctrinational classes to condition their minds into loyalty to a system or an organization rather than love and loyalty to Jesus, even though they would deny they do it. If you look operationally and functionally, that's what happens. On Tuesday's lesson, it gives us three-step process and how to get out of debt. Uh, Step one, stop accumulating new debt. Cease all credit spending. Well, you know something? This is a a principle said in many different ways. When I was in my residency, one of my faculty taught us this principle in a different word. Uh, He said, if you find yourself in a hole, quit digging. (laughs) If you don't do anything, don't do anything. Just stop, cease, desist, don't do anything. The hole doesn't get deeper. And that's the first step. Stop digging the hole. Stop going into debt for step one. Step two, make an agreement with God that as he blesses you, you will faithfully apply your resources to paying off your debts as quickly as possible. Uh, And you will not buy new stuff uh, with, with uh, with your new income, but pay off the debt. So you're making a covenant or an agreement with God that with the income that I get, I'm not going to go out and I'm not going to not only will I not take on new debt, I won't go out and just buy new stuff with my income. I'll pay off my debt first. And then step three, make a list of all your debts, largest to smallest, uh, and then begin paying off the smallest high interest ones first. And then after that one's paid off, take whatever you were paying on that one and add it to the next one on the list and pay it off. And after those, take that sum and keep adding it to the one above it until the debts are paid off. I think it's a generally good guideline and general principle. Uh, I don't think it's a cookie-cutter rule that will work for every single person in every circumstance, but I think there's some good points here. Anybody have any comments on that? Uh, Wednesday's paragraph, uh, first paragraph, Wednesday's first paragraph says, the Bible is very clear that God does not want his children to become responsible for the debt obligations of others. In the book of Proverbs, the Lord has warned us that against surety, that is, co-signing or being a guarantor uh, for, other, for another person. Did you know this was a biblical principle that you're not to co-sign uh, for someone else's debt? This is what it says in Proverbs, Proverbs 22, 26 to 27. Do not be a man who strikes hands in pledge or puts up security for debt. If you lack the means to pay, your very bed will be snatched from under you. 
or Proverbs 11:15. He who puts up security for another will surely suffer, but whoever refuses to strike hands in pledge is safe. And Proverbs 11, uh, yeah, and that, that was the that was the NIV. This is the good news of the same version. If you promise to pay a stranger's debt, you will regret it. You are better off if you don't get involved. <laughs> what do you think about that? Do you think that's true? Mm-hmm. What, what about with your children when they <laughs> sign student loans? And if I remember correctly, I think your parents had to sign in the beginning, at least back in my day. And I always thought that was strange that you're old enough to take on $50,000 plus of debt, but not old enough to drink. You don't have enough assets. So the question about your student debt, I guess it would have to be how you frame and understand the meaning of that. Are you as a parent uh, um, taking on the debt because you want to help your, so it's really you're taking it on primarily, but boy, the situation is structured. If you went out and just got a loan yourself because you want to actually help your child and it's a gift from you to your child, it would be um, higher, higher interest and the terms on payback would be more severe. So allowing it to process through the student loan structure allows for a lower deferred interest uh, that you are willing to take. So if you're, do- willing, if you're doing it in that way, then this really doesn't apply because your intention as a parent is to, help your, is to help your child and you're willing to incur the debt to help your child. But if, if, uh, if your goal is for them to pay it back and it's your view that, uh, that they may not pay it back and you'll be saddled with it and you don't want to actually incur that debt, then no, you shouldn't do it. So why are we not to give security? Well, let's read the second and third paragraph in the lesson. It says, surety usually occurs when a person with poor credit seeks a loan from a lending institution and does not qualify for the loan. The loan officer will tell the unqualified person that if he or she will get a friend with good credit to co-sign with him or her, then the bank will grant the loan and hold the co-signer responsible in the event of a default. Sometimes a fellow church member will come and ask you if you will co-sign. The response should be, the Bible says I should never do that. Please understand that the Bible encourages us to help those in need, but we should not become responsible for their debts. You agree with that? And then could the reason be Psalms 37:21, The wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously. Could we be advised not to to secure another person's loan? So, so that person, not just us, not just so that we don't get into trouble when they don't pay, but that we protect them from getting into trouble. Have you realized that it's not just you being mean? Or are you simply being selfish and saying, no, and this is where a lot of Christians get manipulated. Somebody comes and asks, and they go, oh, I don't want to be selfish. I want to help them. Uh, but do you recognize that if the person really is in a position where they don't qualify for the loan, uh, denying them the loan protects them? Cosigning could make their life much more difficult. It could actually be harmful to them. What happens if a person of good integrity with good intentions who has a conscience who intends to pay back a loan uh, for whatever reason gets into financial debt beyond their means to pay? 
what happens to that person? Do they have, is it healthy for them? No. Do they have more peace if they are in debt beyond their means to pay? Or do they have more anxiety, more worry that they don't sleep as well? They might have guilt if they actually fall behind. Might they stress? Might they live in fear? Might they live in embarrassment? Might they, uh, and all this act activates the amygdala, which activates the immune system, which kicks up inflammatory factors, which uh, accelerate aging, which contribute to mood disorders, which contribute to uh, accelerated risk of dementia as we age, etc., etc., etc. It can ruin a friendship real quick. It can ruin relationships. What about giving money away? Well, giving money away to people who are capable but not mature or capable and not responsible make the recipient's lives better. No. Well, giving money away to capable, immature, or capable, irresponsible people make their lives better. No. I don't think so. It will not make their lives better. Let me read this out of Second Thessalonians 3, 6 through 12. Now, remember, this is the Bible. And the Bible is not concerned with political correctness. The Bible was, is concerned with actual correctness. What's actually healthy. What's actually good. So, does our brothers and sisters, we command you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to keep away from all believers who are living lazy, uh, living a lazy life and who do not follow the instructions that we gave them. You yourselves know very well that you should do just what we did. We were not lazy when we were with you. We did not accept anyone's support without paying for it. Instead, we worked and toiled. We kept working day and night so that so as not to be an expense to any of you. Now notice, we did this not because we not because we have no right to demand support, because they did. The, the, the laborer is worth its hire. They could have been supported for the work they were doing. But, but we did it to be an example to you, to show that hard work and uh, working for one's way is the way God would have, it, have us uh, live. While we were with you, we used to say, whoever refuses to work is not allowed to eat. We say this because we, we hear that there are some people among you who live lazy lives and do nothing except meddle in other people's business. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command these people and warn them to lead orderly lives and to work to earn their own living. What do you think? Amen. <laughs> Is allowing capable people to be lazy and to refuse to work, if we allow them, remember, I'm saying capable, we're not talking disabilities, capable people who lazily refuse to work, if we allow them to go hungry and even homeless, is that godly or ungodly to do? Godly. 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 Ooh, that's hard to say, isn't it? Why is it godly to let capable people suffer in hunger or even homelessness if they refuse opportunities to work? And why is it giving handouts to people who are capable actually harmful and destructive. You enable them. That, that hunger might be a motivation to get them to work. That they perhaps That's right. Would. And what happens to character? 
What happens to their integrity? What happens to their sense of well-being? Do you understand that work was prescribed by God in Eden in a sinless world because we develop, we advance, we, we, we expand our capabilities as we apply ourselves. We grow in integrity and, and, and worth and value as we apply ourselves in constructive causes. And again, work may or may not be for a paycheck, but we're talking useful labor. It might be that we help, uh, for instance, historically, uh, homemakers and mothers work extremely hard and they didn't get a paycheck for it, but that is extremely valuable and important work. Uh, and there's a difference between a well-ordered, hard-working homemaker mother and a lazy homemaker mother. There's a big difference between those two, isn't there? And it's not about the amount of money they make. It's about how they apply themselves with integrity and honesty and faithfulness to achieve godly outcomes with the application of their own abilities. This is the point that, that God is making. We, we want people to develop godly and mature character, and uh, the application of oneself to one's duties helps people benefit that way. I have a lot more to go on in the, in the notes. If you want to read more about that, it's in the notes. But we are out of, our, out of time, so let's close with prayer, and then we'll do our Q&A time. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much. Uh, for the way you run your kingdom, for the fact that you are always the source of truth. And as we apply your methods to our life, we always experience the blessings that come from living out your principles in our life. We ask that you'll give us insight, wisdom, discernment, and strength to fulfill your purpose in our life. We pray in your holy name. Amen.